Ladies and gentlemen, the great Martin Scorsese. Thank you. I am so pleased to be back here tonight, and I'm honored to have the opportunity to present one of these wonderful artists, or perhaps two of them, with the Oscar for Best Director. An award that, trust me, will mean so much to the recipient. Now, the nominees for Achievement in Directing are... For The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Julian Schnabel. For Juno, Jason Reitman. For Michael Clayton, Tony Gilroy. For No Country for Old Men, Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen. For There Will Be Blood, Paul Thomas Anderson. And the, uh, the Oscar goes to... Hello there, friends and friendos, and welcome to season two of Spro and Lead Take on the Academy. Still the only podcast that rights the wrong, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us for episode 201 of our humble little movie podcast. And hello to my friend and co-host, Spro. Hello, Lee. And hello, listeners. If you're listening for the first time or have forgotten, the premise of this show is pretty simple. We rewrite Oscar history one award at a time. Each episode selects what we deem to be one unworthy Oscar recipient, and there are plenty throughout the years that we put together our notes, thoughts, and opinions, pose questions, and argue over the answers. There's pouting, swearing, and name-calling until we come to a consensus on the person or film that truly deserves to hoist the little golden statue. And we do it every two weeks for your listening pleasure. And for this monumental We're Back episode, we're going to talk about what many critics deem as one of, if not the greatest years in filmmaking. Truly a bar-setting year, 2007. But before we get to that, let's introduce our guest. Spro and I are joined today by writer, director, producer, editor, actor, degenerate, and all-around swell guy, Jeremy Cordy. Thanks for joining us today, JC. How you been? I've been I've been great. That year, what a year we had of like not really seeing a whole lot of movies in the theater. Uh, I still haven't gone back. <laughs> I have, actually. What'd you see? It was A Quiet Place 2. It was the first mm. movie I saw. Did you did you watch the Oscars by any chance? Yeah, I did. I I watched it. Yeah. And it was I was not happy with it. <laughs> it was very weird. It was probably the weirdest Oscars show I've ever seen. And I like all the films that were nominated, it was one of the I don't know, it was one of the weirdest <laughs> weirdest ones I've ever experienced, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty painful. And speaking of painful, Lee and I watched, want the listeners to know the subject of this episode was your choice entirely. We wanted you to join us, told you you could pick whatever award you wanted. And with that choice, you've gotten us into the biggest pickle of our podcast, Young Life. Today, you're making us take the best director Oscars away from two of the most talented American filmmakers probably ever. Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen. No country for old men. <laughs> This is the third Academy Award for Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen, and their second tonight. Speaking of the Coens, the, the adaptation of McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy's novel No Country for Old Men did come out in 2007. I, um, I don't have a lot to add to what I said earlier. 
thank you. Um, Ethan and I uh, have been making stories with movie cameras since we were kids. Um, in the late 60s, when Ethan was 11 or 12, he got a suit and a briefcase and we went to the Minneapolis International Airport with a Super 8 camera and made a movie about shuttle diplomacy called Henry Kissinger, Man on the Go. Um, and Honestly, what we do now doesn't feel that much different from what we were doing then. Um, there are too many people to thank for this. We're really thrilled to have received it and we're very thankful to all of you out there for letting us continue to play in our corner of the sandbox. So thank you very much. And it won, this was my second favorite Oscar telecast of all time. It won Best Director for uh, the Minnesota Siblings, and it won Best Picture as well. It did win Best Supporting for Javier Bardem and Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, I think it's kind of safe to say that this is this one was sort of a lock. We never thought we'd fuck with this one. And I think most people agreed with the choice 14 years ago and still agree today. So it's going to be a tough one. My bad. For... <laughs> no, I think it's great. It's nice to have somebody come in and be like, uh, hey, yeah, you guys weren't ever going to fuck with this one. I'm going to fuck with this one. The good news about Jeremy's choice is that it's plunged us into a year of cinema that is absolutely bursting at the seams with great movies, which allows us to talk about. But we have some questions for Jeremy before we get into the meat of our show. Yeah, so I'm a writer-director. My first movie got to Troma Entertainment. If you don't know that, the they're the guys who made The Toxic Avenger, Sergeant Kabuki Man, Tromeo and Julia, Poultry Guys. So uh, yeah, Lloyd Kaufman saw my movie Porking Mandy, and he decided to put it on the uh, Troma Now app, which just got delivered to Fire Stick, Apple TV, and Roku. Anywhere you can get an app, now Troma Now is available, so you can watch Porking Mandy anytime <laughs> that you want. <laughs> and for anybody that enjoys the bizarre that is where uh, Mr. Cordy lives. We actually shot, I participated in a supporting role in one of your earlier films, yeah. which I noticed, I noticed you did not count as your first film <laughs> and maybe rightfully so. Yes. It's uh, probably one of the most offensive movies I've ever seen. And I remember you telling me when we were on the shoot to just, you were like, just be as offensive as say whatever comes to your mind. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and everybody did. Yeah. Yes. The best scene that I think I think you you did was with my brother and you're like screaming at each other at a park after a girl dies from my movie. The movie he's talking about is called Holy Crap and it's about a shit monster. <laughs> It's about a bunch of kids who accidentally kill their friends in the woods. They eat them to cover up the evidence. And when they shit them out, he's resurrected through their feces to seek revenge. <laughs> so anyways, um, there's a scene where, you know, <laughs> my brother's lying. He's lying to the cop. Lee played a cop. And yeah, he basically... Um, is messing around with these kids. He goes a little overboard a lot. I think he even kills a high school student at one point just to prove a point. Like, don't mess with me. Cause, and then he shoots a random high school. It's a really crazy movie, <laughs> but my favorite scene is when you are 
yelling at each other and you like you spit your gum on my brother and it just stuck right onto him <laughs> i don't remember that at all it's the it's the best thing i have ever shot still to this day you spit <laughs> your gum because he's like so this girl choked on a hot dog and my brother's like yeah but officer you don't understand this hot dog was the size of my dick and then you're like the size of your dick and then you spit your gum at him and you're like why don't you show some fucking respect you piece of shit <laughs> i remember the line but i do not was it planned like did did he and i work it out where i was gonna be like yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh okay uh, okay because we had to do that take a lot and my brother couldn't my brother couldn't hold it so when i shot it <laughs> we had to do so many takes of that because the gum wouldn't stick and i wanted it to stick so <laughs> once it stuck for like a little bit i was like okay that's the take i can use from that scene yeah yeah that was yeah that was a crazy time i can't believe we're talking about a shit movie and then we're gonna talk about one of the greatest years of cinema <laughs> Well, I mean, there's room for everybody, in in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. So my question would be, when we were planning out the episode, it was between Best Picture and Best Director. As a director, what would you say, Lee and I are split on this, because I think he kind of wants the two to go hand in hand, correct me if I'm wrong there, and then I believe that they are two completely different awards. In terms of award giving, what do you think the difference is between Best Picture and Best Director? Best picture is uh, how a movie I feel like is is put together and how it all I think because it's such an industry where people are, you know, into their they're going at their own jobs. So a lot of people are like, oh, that producer worked on it and that director worked on it and that actor. So I feel like this is the best picture. Director is the style, the artistic part of the movie. The the one best director goes just like an actor. It's it's like the artistic side of the award of like, hey, whoa, this movie was amazing. This movie was mind blowing. And it's all because of the director. It's not. But the best picture is because you're giving it to the whole team of producers that have their name on it, the executives, you know, everyone who wants to like go to the awards show and, you know, have their dick suck because they're just like, yeah, I did this awesome thing with money because I'm rich. and I'm a privileged asshole. Here we go. <laughs> so that's the difference between best <laughs> director. <laughs> I like it. So we talked about how 2007 kind of gets thrown around as one of the best movie years of all time. Is there a particular year where you were just like going to see banger after banger in the theater? Like for me, 1994 comes to mind. And then even, you know, years before I was born, 1975 comes to mind. You know what? Because it was such an impact on me. I I think because I was I thirteen. Spider Man came out at like two thousand one, if I can, or two thousand two, maybe. Because I remember X Men and X Men was good and all, but you know, it was like the year where the superhero movie was like, oh, whoa, this was like a game changer. Like Spider Man, I remember it like made so much money, and so that year, like, I feel like I. I was watching a lot of movies because in junior high, you just, we would just go to the mall and, and watch movies. And then we'd hang out for like two hours after the movie and just, you know, bother the security. And then another one is 2004. 2004, that was just Shaun of the Dead, Napoleon Dynamite. It was like an explosion of like Garden State, like these independent like filmmakers. It was, it was like the year of like, whoa, I'm discovering new directors and new voices. And that, that was like a, a pretty impactful year for me. Was 2004 because it it made me feel like that's when it was like oh i could legitimately do this one day 
Yeah, it's always fun to see those movies where you're like, this feels possible. Yeah. It's funny that when we came up with the podcast that like, I was like, oh my gosh, the Academy Awards, they're like my Christmas day. And you're like, fuck the Academy Awards. But then we like turn around and you're like, you're the high art appreciator. And I'm, I, I kind of am a little like on the B scale of things. So 2007, once we started deep diving, I was like, is this a great year? And then started going down the list of what else came out this year. And it's the top four grocers of 2007 are sequels, starting with Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is now the most expensive movie ever made. Um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Spider-Man 3, since we're bringing up Spider-Man, Spider-Man 3. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and Shrek the Third. And these aren't even really good sequels. Only two films in the top 10 grocers, would I say, were good and original, which was 300 and I Am Legend. And I think, first of all, you can't really judge it a movie year by what the mouth-breathing masses of dipshits are going to see. So, <laughs> number one. Number two, you realize that 300 is a remake of, I mean, I know it's a historical story, but it was made as 300 Spartans back in like the 60s. And I Am Legend has been made a ton of different times if you're talking about just based on the on the source material who was the author of that richard jewison or something no i'm making shit up. i am legend it's not grant morrison i no. if you said it i'd know it in any event well if i said it you wouldn't know it <laughs> <laughs> there's not much to be said if if you're just basing it on box office draw because people go see trash all the time minions let's go over some of the better years of cinema and just let's really figure this out 1939 we're going all the way back to that is referred to as hollywood's golden year this is when the world was introduced to the wizard of oz jimmy stewart's mr smith goes to washington the film version of bronte's wuthering heights starring Lawrence olivier of mice and men john wayne and stagecoach which i think our dads liked and oh yes there was this other little film called gone with the wind Ooh. 19 films from this year are in the National Film Registry, which is a record. So that's 1939. Skip forward two decades to 1959. And I think this is a really kind of sweet year because you you have a little bit of everything. You got action with films like North by Northwest and Ben-Hur. Comedy with Some Like It Hot. Disney releases Sleeping Beauty. And I wonder if you, Lee, have to give 1959 its due because with the French New Wave being kicked off by the 400 Blows, and what your boy QT deemed the best quote-unquote hangout film with Rio Bravo. I mean, would QT be, would Quentin Tarantino be who he is today without the year of 1959? 67. Yes, uh, this year. Is when when movies start getting edgier with Violets, with Bonnie and Clyde, Dirty Dozen, The Jungle Book, (laughs) The Producers, Cool Hand Luke, In the Heat of the Night, and uh, The Sexiness of The Graduate. Although, I don't know where I found that because I personally find Faye Dunaway really sexy as Bonnie. I'd take Catherine Ross as the daughter, Elaine Robinson in uh, The Graduate over over Faye. <laughs> so, if wow. we're taking women, you know? <laughs> yeah. Take them. Take them away. I know our audience kind of glazes over when we get into the really old films. So, 1975... I mean, we can talk real quickly about how the 70s might be the best decade in film, but if we're focusing on one year, 1975 was Jaws, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Dog Day Afternoon, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Some Say Nashville, I fucking can't stand it, 
And then there's Barry Lyndon. Well, I'm uh, glad I never saw Nashville because if you don't like it, then. <laughs> I'm yeah, I've never seen it. it. I've never seen it either. Altman's real hit or miss. Uh, Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, a lot of really important movies this year for me personally. Yeah. Just the, the first three that you mentioned, Jaws, Cuckoo's Nest, and Holy Grail. Yeah. Then 94. 94, you have Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, The Lion King, The Shawshank Redemption, Quiz Show, Legends of the Fall, Clerks, Interview with the Vampire, Speed, which was probably like the first movie that I saw seven times in the theater, True Lies, The Crow, Leon the Professional, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and I mean, this was Jim Carrey because then he also had The Mask and Dumb and Dumber, Through the Olive Trees and Four Weddings and a Funeral were all 94. I'm on record saying that I think movies and film have taken a huge hit in quality after the disastrous two years from the horrible Columbine shootings and the birth of our current sensational opinion-based media and the events of 9-11. I believe he's put a sort of censorship on Hollywood and suddenly showing cigarettes in film was one of the worst fucking things that could possibly happen. Yeah. But so 99 being like my last like hurrah, you have Matrix, Iron Giant, Office Space, Galaxy Quest, being John Malkovich, Blair Witch, you know, was inventive for its advertising and and low budget, Fight Club, Sixth Sense, Election, Eyes Wide Shut, Stir of Echoes, Virgin Suicide, South Park, Mm. made it onto the big screen, Three Kings, it was so, you know, commendable. Yeah. And then if we're going to skip past 2007, because we're going to talk all about that today, 2014, you had Whiplash, Birdman, Gone Girl, The Theory of Everything, The Imitation Game, Grand Budapest Hotel, Citizen Four. I see Verlai really wants to talk about 2017. Nah, we can, I mean, (laughs) no, we can skip it. We can skip it. I think 2017 is a great great year, but you disagree with me. I mean, I like Logan, but if you ask me, it was the 20 years between the mid 70s to mid 90s that is like the pristine era of films kind of when like the studio started opening up to auteurs in the 70s allowing artists to express who they are in film and kept throwing money upon money at them until the Wachowski sisters uh, did the Matrix for whatever reason these films to me like they feel authentic much like you have to venture now to see independent films and art houses it's hard to believe that used to be a time when studios funded untested sci-fi Ridley Scott projects and placed them in 2000 theaters give me 1980 or 80 or 84 or 85, 86, when Spielberg really became Spielberg, when Scorsese solidified himself, William Goldman found his voice, John Hughes told us stories, you know, like people like characters like Indiana Jones. Um, I'm so fucking hyped to see Tom Cruise play Maverick again in Top Gun. I can't even tell you. Mm. Michael J. Fox, Sophie's Choice, Nora Ephron, Jack Nicholson, James Cameron, Meryl Streep, like these are fucking names. And they all came out like right around 75 to 85. So give me that decade. And then if we had to pick one year, I would say 94 is kind of where it all peaked and then slowly start coming down. Yeah, yeah Batman and Robin really in 97 just kind of ruined a lot yeah, of stuff. I'm on I agree. <laughs> but <laughs> I will say uh we're we're not forgetting that the 80s also brought in some of the best cheesy crazy horror films that anyone has ever I mean we're talking about Brian Yakuza doing a sequel to Reanimator we're talking about like The Evil Dead 2 Robocop like the you know we got a lot of cool stuff from the 80s too that like our brain dead was that 80s brain dead oh yeah that was a work basket case we uh, Castle Freak we, we have so many weird films that like 
studios were just because horror movies always make like a profit no matter what i don't know what it is but they always make a profit no matter how weird or demented they are there's always that horror thing and i feel like the 80s took horror to like this campy comedy insanity level that has just i'm obsessed with that with the 80s in general just because i'm just like holy shit they like spent five million dollars on this crazy movie about a guy who's taking care of a little deformed baby like what <laughs> what uh, movie is that basket case two <laughs> <laughs> here's a question for you jeremy what do you one what's your favorite horror movie and then two what do you think is the most well-made horror movie my favorite horror movie is evil dead 2 dead by dawn uh that's just such a joy i know it's a comedy as well but that's probably my the most watched horror movie I've ever seen. Most well-made horror film. Honestly, it's actually, that's a tough one because lately we've had these like what I call like mood horror in a way, like this new genre, like, you know, It Follows and Midsummer and Hereditary where these, there's a mood to this, this horror that's like the filmmaking is, is amazing, but yeah, I fucking love all, th- I mean, I haven't seen Midsommar, but that's because Hereditary was, it was so traumatic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Midsommar is the same way. Uh, oh no, then I can't, I can't. <laughs> fucking watch it <laughs> yeah but in terms of like uh well made i mean they they just keep they they keep getting better and better to me i mean i that's that's a really hard thing because i love the original halloween and it's so low budget that's like you can't really say it's a well-made horror film like it's just because they didn't have the money and most horror films don't have the money uh but when you get a talented person I, yeah i don't know i don't know if i could answer what the best well-made horror film is honestly i wish i could do you think do you think ari aster is going to be has the biggest chance of getting up on the oscar stage yeah with a horror I, film Absolutely. I, I I definitely think he does. I mean, he has such a commanding like force on the screen and he knows exactly what he's doing. So if he wants an Oscar one day, he's going to make the movie to give it to him. I, I really feel like. But I feel like with Yorgos Lanthimos getting up there for the favorite as a nomination, mm. like Ari Aster has to be like kind of right there behind because they make similar type mood films. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I would consider yeah, I would consider him into those those mood horror categories or mood comedy, I guess is what he would be. But yeah, there's been a lot of like style over over the script in a lot of ways. And I feel like that's that's very invigorating to a director because that's what you want to do as a director. You want to put your own stamp on things, your own your own vision, your own pace. All right. Good banter. Good banter. So this will be <laughs> this will be commercial break because it's time for Oscar Fun Facts with Spro brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick me up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. And when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. 
Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. Of the 93 films that have been awarded Best Picture, 66 have also been awarded Best Director. So there's a 71% chance that if the director wins, the film will win as well. That might be changing as it's been about half and half the last 10 years. This number is surprisingly lower than I thought it would be because one of the myths of the Oscars is that Best Director and Best Picture go hand in hand. Obviously, there's periods of 10 years or more when this was the case. Straight. Straight through. But since the Oscars have opened up to the Best Picture category, opening it up to 10, they have seen more splits. People often ask... What's the difference? And Jeremy has gone over it. And I'm, I'm so glad you're on the show because I like how you worded it, where best director is the style of the film and best picture is kind of the managerial aspect of it or producers just trying to get up on stage themselves with their money. I said that better um, than I did. But I, think, but I think as we get into the second season of us taking on the Academy, we're going to see that the awards are given out on a very suggestive or slash political basis. So you said earlier that I would prefer these two awards to go together. I don't know that I would prefer it, but there are certain years where I feel like they should be together. I think No Country for Old Men is a perfect example. Jeremy would disagree with me, but I mean, it, one, I don't, I don't disagree. It's a good film, and the directors and the they did a good job. It's just, you know, I think There Will Be Blood is better, but we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into. Um, I feel sometimes that it's merely made from a financial standpoint because if you split those two awards, arguably the two biggest film awards, you might get people to go and see. It's kind of like spread the money around like this one won best director but that one won best picture so i have to see them both i always feel like everything comes back to money like 2016 is a good year of where i i i think it's fine if they split spotlight won best picture because it was important inaritu won best director for the revenant because i mean it, it literally goes right along the line of what jeremy said that one was style definitely over story and spotlight was a very humbly made not flashy or inventive or very technical but important I think that's one key element, too, is that the best picture feels like tends to go to socially important films a lot of the time. And then mm. sometimes it goes to The Shape of Water. Did you like Shape of Water, Cordy? It reminded me of like an old universal monster movie, but with mixed with like a French style. It was like Amelie meets Frankenstein or Amelie meets the creature from the Black Lagoon. That's what it reminded me of. Interesting. We've been talking about who pretty much we're going to give the award to. So before we break down the year of film, let's just go through what came out that year. And if anybody wants to talk about any of these films, just stop me. This whole list is going to prove that it... And I feel like this can happen every year. I think like we are generally becoming more of a pessimistic society where like at the end of anything, we're like, well, that sucked. Let's move on to the next. Like every New Year's Eve, people are like, well, I hope next year is going to be better. Like, fuck, just change your mindset. But 
I think every year that you could come out of it and be like, there's a lot of great films that happened that year. Some might not have gotten the notoriety that they deserve, but here is the list of 2007, starting with 1408, which we don't have to talk about. I just think it's one of the best adaptations of a Stephen King novella. I guess you can't say novel, but it's like right up there. I'd say it's top five with like Shawshank Redemption, Stand By Me, and The Shining. That was one of the ones where the trailer kept like ruining it for me. Like it, and it was in front of every fucking movie. I was like, like, stop showing me this trailer. And it was everywhere. So I was like, and then when I finally saw it, I was like, well, I just saw it again. It, it could be the best adaptation, but was it a story that I had to revisit over and over again every two minutes in the theater? and then finally give it the two hours i don't know next up is 300 Mm -hmm. Mm, this is this is where we get into Zack snyder territory and this is where a lot of people who love cinema this is where they butt heads he's an amazing visionary does he understand screenplays and acting i don't know i don't think he cares i think he's very much into the physical form of the human body he always has perfect sculpted people in his movies i love it he's the only person that in in terms of you know in the 80s action world where we had stallone and schwarzenegger and i grew up with all those films he's still the only filmmaker that still kind of pays homage to all of those feelings that i used to have in the 80s with you know machoism and and ultra feminism and even more so than michael bay uh yeah michael bay he's he's good too he i mean i like how he he does his films but i just i can't stand the transformer movies at all even the special effects everything looks so crazy even though i know it's good i know there's talent i cannot tell what the fuck is happening when transformers fight each other in those movies Snyder lost me with Man of Steel. I was admittedly ridiculously hyped for that movie because Nolan was producing. I thought that they were going to embark upon the Batman trilogy equivalent, but with Superman. And yeah, boy, that movie was garbage. Yeah, I completely agree. But I will say that I do rewatch that movie a lot. And as a joke, I sometimes put it on when my friends walk in. I used to put it on when anytime my friends would walk in, they'd be like, you're watching this again? I'm just like, hey, what's up? And they're just like, why do you keep watching this movie? You know, it's bad. And as I started rewatching it as a joke, I started developing like, (laughs) I'm like, I do kind of like this movie a little too much. I think it was because of the score, though. I did like the score. And when I finally got the score, I stopped watching it. (laughs) Well, 300, I I haven't watched it as much as you've watched Snyder's uh, Superman attempt. But I did enjoy it a little bit more. And this was only the second time I'd ever seen it. But it, it bums me out how lauded Snyder was for more or less poaching Rodriguez's style from Sin City. And you mentioned the machismo bullshit, and that's a big part of it too. I think Sin City is just cooler, uh, more well-rounded characters, kind of like Michael Bay. I don't know, some, some critics said it somewhere along the line. I imagine if you're a little boy seeing this in the theater, being you know, 12, 13, 14, or 15, it was probably pretty special to you. And my guess is your 300 special edition DVD, if you're that kid, has got a couple layers of dust on it. I give it style points though. I like it. And like, you know, to your point of like Rodriguez did it first with Sin City. Yeah. Well, somebody has to start the evolution of film. Yeah, but I just it pisses just me off don't that make Rodriguez Sky never in the world of tomorrow. Who made that? Was that Snyder? Or Sucker Punch. Oh <laughs> no. god, I couldn't even get through Sucker Punch. Ooh, I got the director's cut of that. Do you? There's a lot of <laughs> stuff that is missing from the theatrical that's really fucked up. <laughs> 
Also, has no one ever asked the question, like, what if 300 was not in slow motion at all? Would that movie just be a half hour? <laughs> if I come back here and get you, you know what it is. Hey, don't sir. play that. Yes, sir. I hear you. You won't have to come back. There won't be no problem. What about you, Frank? You need anything? Where's my money? Red Top gave you the package. He's supposed to be handing me my money. There's a jar right here. 20%. Oh, you got the jar? That's right. <laughs> get the fuck out of here, Frank. Oh, what you gonna do? What the fuck you gonna do, Frank? Huh? What you doing? You gonna shoot me in front of everybody? Huh? Come on. Uh, American Gangster. Have you seen that one, Cordy? Oh, yeah. See, I feel like Ultra 4. That was like the first time I saw that actor. I was like, oh, he's great. That's his, that's the guy that plays Russell Crowe's partner. Yeah. And gets addicted to drugs and then dies like in the first 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he he was trying to make something with the Scorsese rewatchability. I feel like he was trying to make that long epic crime movie like a Goodfellas or a Casino. The only parts of it that are rewatchable, in my opinion, are the Denzel parts. Yeah. I mean, I have my opinion on Ridley Scott, but that's like a whole other podcast. So <laughs> I, yeah, I am down. I can't go, I can't go into that one. I can't okay. go down that rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> the next title is The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Ooh, that's a darling to a lot of people. I did not like it the first time. And then upon researching this episode, somebody was like, but you got to look at the cinematography. And so then I gave it a rewatch and I was like, oh my, how did I miss that? This is such a beautiful film. Like one of the most beautiful films I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Especially like the train robbery and the, is that and the mist. And- oh yeah, it probably was. I mean, he was the best part of that in my opinion. Yeah. I was just going to give it a shout out because opposite to you, Spro, I loved it the first time I saw it. I was glued to it and then I bought it. And it was just one of those ones where I'm like, I'm not going to rewatch this now because I need to be A, in the mood and B, just I'm going to be glued to the screen again. And when that night finally came, I found myself reaching for my phone. It's still a really, really good movie. Atonement, which is interesting that we're not talking about at the end because this one was the Golden Globe winner and the BAFTA winner. Ooh, I like like BAFTA winners more than the actual Academy Awards. Whoa, hot take. Zig zig on us, Spro. No, no, I didn't. I'm just saying. (laughs) Just look at the history, though. See, why don't you talk to Robin? I do. We just move in different circles, that's all. Dear Cecilia, you'd be forgiven for thinking me mad. The truth is, I feel rather lightheaded and foolish in your presence, and I don't think I can blame the heat. Running! Do you think you could do me a favor? Run ahead and give this to see. Good heavens, you're blushing. You ought to call the police. You saw him? Yes, I saw him. I know it was him. You know it was him? I saw him with my own eyes. I love you. Come back to me. They gave me a choice. Stay in prison or join the army. My darling, I love you. I'll wait for you. 
No matter how hard I work, I can't escape from what I did and what it meant. The story, what's it about? A young girl who sees something which she doesn't understand, but she thinks she does. Joe Wright, because I feel as though his first couple of movies were pretty good. And uh, God, The Woman in the Window is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. That was Joe Wright? I didn't even know that. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, he's lost it. Well, this movie sticks to me like The English Patient. I get really hung up on those, like the romantic films or or stories that's all about that are all about yearning, that like melancholy yearning of. I love that. Maybe because I'm Irish and we all have a deep sadness. I don't know. <laughs> this one hurts to watch, and it's definitely Wright's best movie. Fourteen years ago, he got a lot of praise for the five and a half minute tracking shot of the Dunkirk. Beach each. Um, and rightfully so. I think even after Nolan's interpretation, the images from Atonement still linger more. I enjoyed rewatching it because it was just, it was, it was nice to see Saoirse Ronan as a little girl again. She's grown into such amazing actress and her running around playing detective and having a crush on Robbie. And she loves Cecilia, but she's also got this like unspoken jealousy of her, the way Wright paces the film. And I haven't read the book, but I got to assume that was a tough adaptation. But the way he melds the truth with the fiction is fucking great. Well, I'm going to watch that now. I will throw out, I think my favorite Joe Wright is Anna Karenina. It's got like a Boz Lerman type feel to it, who I also really like. So if you're oh. like, I only got time for one Joe Wright in my life, I would recommend Anna Karenina over Atonement. But Atonement was also very good. Um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Ooh. Philip Seymour Hoffman. And oh, that was so good. I it love really that is. Movie. Sidney Lumet was just fucking a great man. In it, my was that his last film? Uh, if it wasn't, it was real close to it. Yeah, he could do no wrong. Like that's that's very rare for a filmmaker to just pump out like a great movie all the time. Like, and not to mention, instead of making something like The Verdict when you're seventy plus years old, he makes it when he's a young man, and then makes something like Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which is all about crime. It's very nonlinear. Just a really dark dark movie. I mean, he produces something that looks like it was made by a young man. It looks like somebody's directorial debut. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I don't know how he did that. Like, he pulled something off that was real. Aunt Marissa Tomei. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, the Bourne Ultimatum, which actually was pretty hailed this year, which is funny to me in hindsight, because I don't see necessarily what's so great about. Like, it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, it was at the BAFTAs. It was at the Oscars. Like, really? What and the, Empire I Magazine shows it as the best film of 2007. Okay, I take my BAFTA, <laughs> I take my BAFTA comment back. 
<laughs> I'm not a fan of Matt Damon, but that's been well established already. So next up, Breach, which I had never heard about until you put it on the list for this year. It was actually I want to give it style points for best director of the year, but this movie is one that I think really slipped underneath the radar that people should check out. Yeah, I didn't think it would ever be even in the top. 10 of movies that we would talk about for this year. But yeah, I just wanted to give it a little foreground sight. Wait, is that Ryan Philippi? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can't stand Philippi, but this is without a doubt the best movie. Come on, I know what of. you did last summer. Cruel Intentions. Yeah, this is better than that. And Way of the Gun. Oh, man. And Way of the Gun. Next up is probably what I think is Aaron Sorkin's worst script, which is Charlie Wilson's War. Oh, yeah, I got nothing, yeah, nothing like, to say about it. You make two hours of a movie and then just so you could make the last 10 minutes uh, something to watch. Like, I was literally, like, bored out of my mind. And then the last 10 minutes, I was like, oh, okay. You could have just done that. This is a short. This movie should have been a short. (laughs) I was a little excited when it began because I thought it was going to be a rare Tom Hanks playing a villain. But he's just he's just a womanizer and a bit of a drinker. and uh, But he does the right thing. I will say it's better than, <laughs> what is it, Silence Lions for Lambs or something? Oh, yeah. With Robert oh, Redford uh, and, you know, and Tom Cruise. I'm like, that movie was so boring. Yo, yes. Yes. I checked out of that one, too. Oh, I checked out. I couldn't finish it. And that's when I decided Robert Redford's got to be the most boring but most successful renowned actors of world. Cloverfield is next. I'm going to talk about Cloverfield. Matt Reeves. It was way... I saw 10 Cloverfield Lane before I saw Cloverfield, so there's not much to spoil about Cloverfield. You sort of just puts it all out on Front Street, but I actually was sort of impressed. I was weary of watching it because everyone's like, bro, the cinematography is just vomit-inducing, and I was susceptible to motion sickness, and I I was good to go, and I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the fact that they crashed their helicopter out of the sky and walked away from it at the, yeah, that was, the third that act. Yeah, was some horseshit. Yeah, that was some horseshit. <laughs> Darjeeling Limited. Still my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Really? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Huh. Yep. You have brothers? <laughs> yeah, I got I have one brother. I think it's Owen Wilson's funny. I think he's at his funniest in it. I feel bad that Adrian Brody has disappeared as well. Yeah, and Jason Schwartzman is terrific. Okay. You just like that for one? another podcast to discuss it. What's your favorite, Wes? Uh, Wes? Tenenbaums. Oh, right on. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Whatever. Eastern Promises. Love it. Yeah, it's pretty damn good. It's yeah, dude, good. that the that's like one of the best nude scenes in cinematic history in that bathhouse, that fight scene. And he's just fucking naked killing everyone. I'm like, that's just <laughs> that's Cronenberg just going nuts. Right? Yeah. I I loved History of Violence and I mm. I liked Eastern Promises. And yeah. now yeah. and now it's kind of like it's flipped for me. Whenever I go back to watch History of Violence, it kind of like any scene with the kid that plays his son. Oh, yeah. Just awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he miscast that. Oh, uh, yeah. Are you a Cronenberg fan of his like early? I, I'm not familiar. I mean, I'm familiar with the names of some of them, but I, I've never seen Videodrome. Really? I've never seen, Naked I've never Lunch? Seen, I've never seen Scanners. 
Oh, you're missing <laughs> yeah. out on some some really good movies. I've never Rabbit. seen Crash. Crash. That's when. The, yeah, that's you're missing out on so much. Yeah, guy, I, like I do need to see some of his shit. Yeah, you're <laughs> you missing like, out you on would like Crash. Yeah, you're missing out on a guy who like fucks this girl's hole in their leg. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard. <laughs> No, that's legit. <laughs> yeah. I love James Spader. I think he's the reason that Age of Ultron is my favorite Avengers movie. Ugh. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, okay. dude. All right. That's another That's another subject then. What? Scarlet Witch. What is First happening? appearance, dude. <laughs> Great. Back when she had the Russian accent, too. And then all of a sudden, just stopped having it. <laughs> yeah. Back when Evan Peters wasn't her brother because of Wanda Fishing. Uh, they should have left him alive, too. But I see what they did there. All right. We can move. Uh, Eastern Prom. This is fucking great. Gone, baby, gone. I would like to talk about Gone, baby, gone, but I'm going to let you talk about it first because you have a quite the affection for the author of the source material, Dennis. I do. Lehane. Yeah, Dennis Lehane is my. I think he's probably one of my top favorite writers, if not favorite writers. And the funny thing about Gone, baby, gone is it's actually the fourth book in the Patrick Kenzie Angela Gennaro series. It starts with a drink before the war. Um, then goes into Darkness, Take My Hand, then something called Sacred, then it's Gone Baby Gone, and then it is Prayers Before Rain. The other things that he wrote was Mystic River, which you like to compliment Sean Penn's performance (laughs) in that one. He did one called The Given Day, which I hope they make into a film about Boston police and riots. What I love about Gone Baby Gone is it has one of those endings that you have to talk about. Like you can you can walk away from it and completely disagree with the film that you just saw with whoever you saw it with. And I still still am kind of torn between how I would want it to end. The other thing that I really like about it is the director. I really like Ben Affleck in the director's chair. I don't mind Ben Affleck at all, actually. I, I think the town I would have liked a lot more if Affleck, sorry, if Caffleck and not Baffleck had been in the, the lead. <laughs> I mean, I've never been in a fight. I'm going to fear Ben Affleck looking down on me more than I will fear Casey Affleck looking over at me. Yeah. Really. Yeah. The t- I so just that's why the, I like him in the town the, more. The, the town gets mentioned too much. I think it's overrated, but I mean, talk Argo about, is just such a good movie, though. No, no. And Spro Ar- will not let me take that Oscar away. He has put his fucking foot down that we can. I haven't do. put my foot down. I just think there's a whole lot more egregious Oscars out there. Well, Argo was at least entertaining. Anyway, so Affleck's enjoying lead roles and media spotlight for quite some time, most of our lives now. But I agree with you. I think he was born to direct and his little bro was born to act. And not to say that Affleck doesn't have some good performances, Gone Girl being probably his best. But you got Michelle Monaghan, you got Ed Harris, you got Morgan Freeman, Amy Ryan, Amy Madigan, Titus Welliver, and my personal favorite performance in the movie, Eddie Gathegi, who plays the celebrated Haitian drug dealer Cheese. Oh, man. I mean, that scene where they go to see Cheese is my favorite in the entire movie. My spoiler like that. Guabosmue. You got my money? You leave that shit in the mailbox on your ass well, you feel me? Some other motherfuckers left full rub on them. I don't play squimage. But I don't fuck with no kids. And if that girl only hope is you, will I pray for her? Cause she's gone, baby. 
it's just it's such a great story it would have been hard to fuck it up but he the way he shoots boston is i mean it just these are his streets you can tell that this is where he lived it just feels like you're looking through the eyes of someone that lived there i think he was wise too to i mean he just he's been in the, he was he'd been in the industry so long he surrounded himself with just a ridiculous cast he got john toll to shoot the the fucker and uh harry gregson williams score it's so simple but it's one of my favorite again irish vague sadness to this music <laughs> but you just feel that loss of innocence in the music it's it's all thanks to Dennis Lehane, so we never would have seen it, but uh, with, without Lehane. But anyway, I don't know. I think Angie is one of the greatest female characters ever written, in my opinion. While Patrick's running around trying to act like a badass, she is a fucking strong person. Yep. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So into the wild. Oh, you- that movie. Okay. <laughs> For some reason, that movie really got to me in a way that I was so mad when I watched it. And I feel bad because I know it's based on a true story and it might sound disrespectful. But that movie is essentially about white privilege <laughs> in a way that I've never seen before where he's like, in my life, I'm just going to go into the woods, not know what I'm doing. And I, he dies shitting himself because he ate poison mushrooms because he just didn't want to like he was. Well, well wait, wait. Outside of town. Before we get before we get the corrections department on our ass, I've read the book. I've also read the updated and edited version, which came out once they really realized what killed him. It wasn't poison mushrooms. I know you were just conjecturing and making jokes. He was storing seeds, uh, a type of potato seed that you could eat that was edible because he had a book with him. Uh, and he was storing them in a Ziploc bag. And because of the condensation in the Ziploc bag, a very rare fungus grew on those potato seeds, which led to his starvation. It basically precipitated him being unable to hold down any food. So I'm white. So I like this story. It uh, The book is amazing. Crack, crack. <laughs> Okay, well, all right. That movie just rubbed me the wrong way, and it always will be. It doesn't have the fact. It could have been a black guy that did the same thing. I'd be like, this guy's an idiot. What is he yeah, doing? That's he a just big burnt his wallet. Like, who does that? Like, well, he was he was a big fan of Tolstoy. He was a big fan of Henry David Thoreau. He was a, he was just a big fan of of being turning, a moron. Turning. Like, I, I just don't get it. Like, oh, Chris McCann. Chris McCandless was a big fan of just turn your back on society. And I think it's interesting that one of his final notes in his diary was he's, he wrote, happiness is only real when shared. So instead of being an introvert, an isolated naturalist, he realized in the end, maybe because he was near death at the time, that life is only worth living when you can share it with people. So That's I think true. there is a message in there, you know? I really like these kinds of stories. Like I, I really like the throw caution to the wind and just go live out in the wilderness. I, you know, I will say one of my favorite guilty pleasures is Leo DiCaprio's The Beach, but also Viggo Mortensen and Captain Fantastic. Anything like so, like living out in the wild. This movie, though, it felt inauthentic. Like it, it felt like this is how Sean Penn thinks the wilderness is. This is how Emil Hirsch thinks, you know, like it would feel like it just felt like they drove 30 minutes from a hotel somewhere and set up camp. And yeah, so I can, that's, I can get behind that. Like the, the part where he's eating the apple and he's talking to it and then he breaks the fourth wall. It's like, what am I watching? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like that the whole movie. I was like, what is the motivation to this guy? <laughs> 
going away and burning his stuff. Like, there was no motive. At least with Wild, Reese Witherspoon, like, had a divorce or something, or her husband died. And she was like, fuck society. Just like Nomadland, there's a motivation there. I couldn't get behind his motivation to go out into the, w- the woods by himself. He had, he had serious issues with his father. <laughs> I mean, boohoo, right? We all do. Well, I but... hope he was fucking molested because that's the only reason I'd get behind him going into the woods. Okay. Quote of the episode. I hope he was molested. Um, all right. Swish. <laughs> Moving on. King nope. Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. Uh, that's one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Yeah, that really is. It's certainly it. not an important film at all. It's just but... so entertaining. Oh, God, it's so good. I fucking hate Billy Mitchell. I'd spit gum on his face if I ever saw him in person. <laughs> It's on YouTube. Like They took it off all the streaming and you can watch it in its entirety on YouTube for free. And just sometimes I'll just go to sleep to it. It's so great. Such a great cast of characters. All these fucking aged out arcade early 80s stars, yeah. I guess you could call them. <laughs> yeah. Lions for Lambs came out this year. Cordy, what I was just talking about. about. <laughs> fuck that movie. <laughs> Cut a hole the in that movie and fuck others? it. Oh, yeah. I do want to talk about the lives of others. Am I the only one that watched this one? Probably. Yes. I think so. Oh. Spro, you would love this movie. I crushed a lot of movies. This was one I'd never seen. I'd never even heard of this one. Written and directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Suffice to say, it takes place in a, a, an era of history when the Berlin Wall was close to coming down. And it's basically about espionage, but it's done in such a human human way that, I mean, the, you, get, you get roped into these characters. It's a beautiful movie. And if we're talking candidates for best director, maybe not, but it should have been in the discussion for picture. Definitely over Juno. Actually, I take that back. Fuck Jason Reitman. Let's put this one in there for best director. It's very good. It was one of the BAFTAs. All right. Persepolis. I love Persepolis. We don't have to talk about it, but yeah, it's the Marjan Satrapi, the Iranian woman who lived in France, but she grew up in Iran during the Islamic fundamentalist revolution. She ended up writing a graphic novel, series of, of, of graphic novels about what it was like growing up under that regime. And what it was like growing up after leaving that regime when everyone was like, ew, you're Iranian. It's uh, her her art style is in both the graphic novel and the movie. So if you ever get a chance to to look at it, if you ever get a chance to look at the book, if you like the book, if you like her her artwork in the book, just watch the movie because it's you get to see it move. And it's it's so cool. It's so original. Anyway. <laughs> Persepolis. You didn't want to talk I about like it. How you started that with? We don't have to talk about. It. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fine. Fuck you guys. I wanted to talk about it. <laughs> I like um, it. Ratatouille. It's my favorite Pixar movie. That's for sure. Oh, it's up there for me. Finding Nemo is my fave. What would you say is the difference between directing live action versus directing anime? Do you think we would find a, like a best director for animated sometime in our lifetime? I, well, I think because animation is. Usually, it's shared directors with animated movies. Um, you usually have like unspoken, like four or five directors on an animated movie. But then you have like two lead directors that are usually credited. I think it's uh, it's a little that one's difficult because certain scenes. There's definitely a vision, of course. Like, but I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with animated uh, with directing animations at all. I, I couldn't imagine doing it just because of all the departments you'd have to talk to every day and r- running around and phone calls and 
oh, you know, like, this is great, but redo it this way. And now we're going to wait like 13 hours for it to render again. Like that would be just so time consuming. I, I, I couldn't imagine that. Like, that's why it's usually best animated feature for a reason, because it's not one single vision. It's, it's a lot of different, it's a lot of different takes and a lot of different departments and studios and, but oh, you're all right. I mean, there's two directors credited for Ratatouille. It's Brad Bird and Jan Pinkova. Yeah, that's yeah, that's usually what what it is. So, but I like it because I don't really like Pete Doctor Pixar movies. So, Sunshine, nice little Danny Boyle right there. Yeah, Super Bad. I think I like Super Bad because it was a return to high schoolers being high schoolers. Where I feel like after Columbine, there was a whole lot of censorship over how high schoolers should act. Like it went from like, we were getting into can't hardly wait territory and everything in American pie. And then it was like, no, no, no. If it's high school, we're just going to do like high school musicals and stuff like that. They're just going to be singing happy. You know, like we need to make sure that they don't want to shoot up their high schools. And it was like, well, but that didn't help their behavior. Like high schoolers acted the same way when we were in high school, probably when you were in high school. Yeah. Because I feel like you're younger than us, right? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, I'm 34 and I I would definitely agree with that. Next up is Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which was the Golden Globe winner. Tim Burton's last good movie, I think. You did you like it? I I enjoyed it. I I just wish it wasn't a musical, but yeah, I I feel like that mm-hmm. was his last good movie in terms of like I would revisit it. It's just, I think a lot of composers that I know hate that movie because it's a musical. But I just like Tim Burton violence, like when he goes into our territory and I like his blood. I don't know what it is, but his fake blood is phenomenal. (laughs) I'm with you. I love this movie and uh, Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Yep. We already talked about this movie, but Transformers. I do want to say, because you shat on it. I really like Shia LaBeouf and I know he's got his own troubles right now and everything like that, but I really like performances that he turns in. And then finally, Zodiac. Ooh, this will take a minute. Dear editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek. Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Lana said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. (laughs) What are you doing at a gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually, first class. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, God, Sam, was So there's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military blueprints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake! Get away from the window. Paul, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? You put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? 
Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Killing is his compulsion. It drives him. It's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? So, a little peek behind the curtain that this episode was going to be up for Best Picture first and foremost. And looking at the list of films, Zodiac to me is better to me than No Country for Old Men. I would put Zodiac above No Country for Old Men in my view. There's something about movies like All the President's Men and Spotlight about good journalism that I think is very important for us to keep reminding ourselves of. And there's something dark, but yet hopeful about this film that I think like David Finch, this might be David, one of David Fincher's best pieces. And really, I'm on record saying that he's one of my favorite directors. But this film walks a line. I guess he's rewriting history in a way that like Oliver Stone did with JFK, but in the same instance, giving you a factual observation of what could possibly quite happen. And, you know, one of my favorite things is art should be a reflection of society and should be a mirror toward ourselves and our belief system. And I believe that Zodiac is one of those movies that kind of shows you our journalist should be obsessed about getting to the bottom of the real story. What? I've never heard that it's... I mean, every true story has its, you know, moments where it's like, we pushed these events together. This didn't happen here. It happened there. What to what are you referring when you say that he kind of Oliver Stones this? There was no so like in the end when like everything has come into fruition, there was no like man in a basement with the poster or anything like that. Like that was completely made up that he just threw in. Well, so that's one one of the best scenes in the movie. (laughs) Yeah. And that's in the third act, you know, so that's very, the audience by then is thinking they're piecing it all together. And he throws in another red herring that just did not possibly happen. Yeah. That was so So, freaky. Yeah, it was. I couldn't like walk into a room alone after I saw that scene for a (laughs) while. Like it was just so creepy. Like, I'm just like, okay, someone could be here. I think I can get behind what you're saying about it being better than no country just simply for the fact that i mean jeremy already brought it up no country is in my opinion more rewatchable than the than the credit jeremy gave it but i've watched there will be blood and zodiac god triple the times that i've watched no country for old men i probably watch zodiac and there will be blood each every year probably three times i mean i almost think it's like it was a disservice and really this is the last movie on the list so we can actually just start blending into the top five oscar picks and we're taking it away from no no country for old men zodiac on the same level is I don't think if we're looking at a period of history and one, I want to point out David Fincher wasn't even nominated, which I think if we're going to talk about snubs, this is a huge one. Which one, what would you take out Juno or Michael Clayton, or I guess the diving bell and the butterfly, which we didn't get all three. I don't think nominated for diving bell should stay in diving bell. All right. So let's go the top five, no country for old men by Joel and Ethan Cohen, the diving bell and the butterfly by Julian Schnabel, Juno by Jason Reitman, Michael Clayton, 
Tony Gilroy, and There Will Be Blood by Paul Thomas Anderson. Tell me David Fincher does not belong up there with Zodiac. I, I won't tell you I won't tell you that. I agree, <laughs> I agree with you, but I want to know what you're taking out, which you can't say all three. I think Diving Bell should stay in. I'm torn between Clayton and Juno. I think Juno's more interesting. Clayton's just a really well-made thriller. I don't agree with the Michael Clayton. I would take out Juno for Zodiac. I would take out Michael Clayton for Joe Wright's Atonement. Ooh, okay. I, I I agree with that. Even though I haven't even seen Atonement, but just from what you, you're saying, I'm on board for that. Yeah, yeah. Zodiac <laughs> should have been up there. I really don't know what the Academy's waiting for as far as Fincher is concerned, but he, I guess, is a type A asshole, like James Cameron is a type A asshole, so he just might, might kind of fucking rub people the wrong way, and uh, since it's his peers voting for him, they're like, fuck that guy. <laughs> he does, uh, he is notorious for bossing studio heads around. Which is awesome. Which yeah. Is awesome. It's true, but they're not going to fucking want him to win, <laughs> ever. It's true. Yeah, Zodiac is so so fucking good. The first time that we see Tony Stark and Bruce Banner together. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. true. I realized that uh, like a year and ago. When Mysterio. Who's Mysterio? Oh, yeah. From that- Spider-Man. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. Are there any other Marvel folks in there that we're missing? <laughs> this movie is kind of like buying a double album of your favorite band. And getting back to what I said about 300 versus Sin City, I just, I want the people that I like to be successful. And Sin City wasn't a flop, but it didn't make near near the amount of money that 300 made. And here's another example. After Zodiac's theatrical run, it hadn't even made 90 million, whereas Wild Hogs took in 250 million. Just people I mean, are rightfully fucking so. idiots. No, oh, God. And, it, and it, it not only was it he not nominated for Best Director, but the entire movie garnered not a single nomination, which is sort of mind-blowing. That is insane to think about. Uh, and maybe, I mean, maybe it was like, okay, we get it. You're dark and brooding and you like making movies about serial killers or whatever. But I just, I mean, this is one that the Academy really should be kicking themselves hard in both cheeks for. I heard that murder victims' costumes, they were like actually costume design from from the forensic evidence. Oh, dude, his, his attention to detail. I was watching, because uh, I have the super duper special edition. There's a scene where they're down by the lake in that California State Park. I can't remember the name of it. And they're looking around the actual lake where those where the woman was murdered and the dude was stabbed and he managed to get back to the car. And this guy is arguing with Fincher about where the actual stabbing took place because Fincher's like, that's where we're going to shoot it. Which, I mean, you're kind of treading on hollowed ground. I mean, the the, the brashness of that is it's like, if he was my director, I'd be like, well, this fucking guy. And they were arguing about it and arguing about it. And Fincher brought up like uh, coordinates. He was like lining it up. Um, he's cross-checking it with all the police notes and shit. And he's like, it was right here. The guy finally backed down. He's like, okay, you're right. Because he showed, he showed him so much evidence that he's like, it's here. The guy was like, it's on the other side of the lake. And Fincher kept his cool, but I mean, he would not back down. It's funny as fuck. Did you ever see that? No. That's pretty good. He's notoriously micromanagey. That's not a word. He's notoriously persnickety. I guess they like, they like to fuck with him. I can't remember the, what movie it was on, but they 
change the setting of one of the lights on an interior setup when they went away for lunch. And when they came back, I mean, it was a minuscule change and he noticed and they were like, they were like betting each other to see if he would notice and he fucking noticed. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I I know he does. He's notorious for doing like hundreds of takes too. Uh He'll he'll put actors through the ringer. Downey Jr. said he'd never work with him again. He was like pissing in jars and leaving him around the set as a form of uh, protest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Was he like, sober? Like, I don't think there's ever going to be, I don't think there's ever going to be a movie that, like, I love the fact that there's a movie about the Zodiac that nobody's going to top. Like, this is, if you want to know anything about the Zodiac serial killer, this is the movie to go to. Where, like, sometimes, like, we brought up Dunkirk. I would love a movie about Dunkirk that's actually really entertaining, but we won't get it now that Christopher Nolan made a movie about soldiers sitting, shitting in the sand. Oh so, you need to rewatch that. <laughs> It's not mm. as bad. It's not as bad as you think it is. It's definitely is better it, than some of his other stuff. I think it's going to hold is, up better than like Inception or Insomnia. Well, I don't know about Insomnia, but Inception. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's talk blood. Yeah. Yeah. We might as well, because I don't think anybody's going to say Jason Reitman did anything very great stylistically with Juno or Tony Gilroy with Michael Clay- uh, Clayton. I think the style in Juno is more Wes Anderson a- ripoff. <laughs> oh, Okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Come on. Think of that last shot. It's such a Wes Anderson shot. Them playing guitars. You're a part-time lover and a full-time friend. The monkey on your back is the latest trend. Don't see what anyone can see in anyone else. There's a church and here is steeple We sure are cute for two ugly people Don't see what anyone can see in anyone else But Both have shiny happy fits of rage I want more fans and you want more stage Don't see what anyone can see in anyone else Playing guitars and then the bike rider or the kids in uniform. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, they yes. go through. I'm like, what is this? Hmm. So you're not going to see Ghostbusters. We're sorry we made a girl Ghostbusters. Here's kid boys and girls Ghostbusters. Oh, no, I'm totally going to see that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't have a problem with Jason Reitman. I think he's a good filmmaker. I just, Juno was like, I mean, that was Diablo Cody. Diablo Cody should have made that movie, not Jason Reitman. Right on. Interesting. I like that. I like that take. But like she the... was a woman and she was an ex-stripper. So what studio was going to be like, you know what? Yeah, this girl's good. Put her in. <laughs> Here's millions. Yeah. Fair enough. She was a hustler. Come on. Give it to her. Do you want to talk about the diving bell and the butterfly before we just... It was nominated for um, Best Director. I mean, it's meticulous how much Schnabel tries to put you in Bobby, Jean, Jean-Claude Bobby, I think is his name. 
put you in his eye line. Like when he wakes up from his from having his stroke, other than his his blinking, it's almost an unbroken shot of like I want to say 15 minutes of him looking at these people that are surrounding him, telling him what happened, telling him what's going to have to happen, trying to explain to him, and all the while like his his interior monologue. Like this is a movie that is so effective at doing that that it I had to watch it in shifts because it was like giving me that like trapped anxiety. Like when you're all the way Ooh. on the left and the highway on, uh, on the highway you're all the way in the left lane and then all of a sudden you hit traffic and you're like I need to get over what if I need to get over what if there's an emergency in this car I, I can't get over and people can't move and then you're like <sighs> is that just me is that my only one <laughs> okay now so that makes sense that's okay yeah. <laughs> but it's not something that I just simply based on the subject matter it's not one that I want to continue going back to sure there are the moments of triumph I mean the man blinks out his memoirs, which I really would kind of like to read because he he has a poetic voice. And Schnabel does it to you. He waits until the end to show you the actual scene of the stroke. So then he builds that anxiety even more. That sequence is, is so effective. And the holding off until the end to put that sequence is so effective. And just you're starting to get used to him being this way. And you love the people that take care of him. And you love how respectful he is of them. And they've started banging out his memoir and it's going to be published. And then he takes you back to the stroke. And it is, it's jarring. Like I'm, I'm a hypochondriac too. So everything's happening to me at the same time. I've been tempted to watch some other Schnabel films, but haven't gotten around to him. He he did the one where uh, Willem Dafoe plays Van Gogh. I think that was like maybe four five, six years ago. Oh yeah. Okay. He did uh, Basquiat. He's like a painter. He's a weird fucking dude. It's it's worth one watch. It re- I mean, the stuff that you don't even think about, like, oh man, you know, I take my wife for granted or I take my cat for granted because he's going to die someday. You don't even think like, boy, I take having both eyes for granted or I take being able to just feed myself for granted. Yeah. This movie will, uh, you'll count your blessings and maybe like start massaging the side of your head because you're like, is that a blood clot in there? Am I about to stroke? Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll add that to the list too. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're down to our final two and we have No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. I think we've talked about No Country for Old Men and how it's obviously a great film, but stylistically from a director's standpoint, I don't think it holds a candle to Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. I mean, I think my feelings for There Will Be Blood is like so strong. I just feel like as there are great Westerns and thrillers, and I feel like There Will Be Blood uh, transcends a lot of that in a, in a similar way. They're they're both very similar movies. I think they were shot near each other too, if I'm not mistaken, like at the same time. Yeah, Marfa. Yeah, but on a completely different level, I think Paul Thomas Anderson compared to the Coens, you're right. We're talking about like the greatest filmmakers of their generation. Like the elites. Yeah. We're talking about some heavy hitters. These are like, and in terms of style and in terms of like Paul Thomas Anderson figuring out his his voice in a new way that was like really new and almost like, and I think it's because my attraction to horror films, I, I do see There Will Be Blood as like this weird little horror film too. So that's what really attracts me to it. Well, and, and the same with No Country for Old Men, but it's a little more deliberate. It's a little more like, they're both very methodic films. I, I just feel like Daniel Day-Lewis as 
one of the greatest actors is just he crushes that role. I mean, it was just such a good, good film in terms of an American classic. Like I can watch a thriller like once and be like, whoa, that was a rush. But I don't feel the need to watch it over and over again like I have with There Will Be Blood. I, I study a lot of those shots and a lot of the camera work and a lot of the, the score in general, the, the soundtrack. It's great. Like it's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. You will be cast up and thrust back to perdition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me. We'll offer 150,000 for full title. When do we get our money, Daniel? I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Don't bully me, Daniel, please! I see the worst in people. We have a sinner with us. Get out of here, devil! I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. can't keep doing this on my own. With these um, people. <laughs> you should tell the truth about how you, the, some of the stuff you were texting me. I should have saved the text. Oh yeah, no, I don't like, I. it's hard for me to get through There Will Be Blood. I do phase out with it. I snickered to myself when Jeremy brought up the score. The score to me is like my least favorite part <laughs> to mm. There Will Be Blood. The emotion that I'm feeling when watching the film and the emotion that the score is conveying are two different things. And that could just be how I'm perceiving the film differently than how either... Who was the composer again? Uh, Johnny Greenwood, Radiohead <laughs> fame. And that was my number one gripe. And so when it came down to best picture versus best director, I was like, I can make a case for best director because the shots in this, the you could tell the intricacies of the storyboarding process for this film. But the score to me is what kills it for best picture because it just, it, it grates on me. In terms of the choice, I mean, that's obviously the director's choice too. Is he definitely wanted that feeling. I think because it's about American industrialism and it sounds like traffic noise almost like we're talking about the beginning of like oil and I think why I love the movie so much is because it is an American masterpiece to me because it is talking about the development of our country and why we are where we're at and I just got a lot out of that movie in terms of what Bree 
greed and selfishness is and what rich rich people are doing to our country and why they're doing it and it almost makes you question the villainy of, of uh, you know corporate America in general but I mean just like the industrial revolution was oil was like essential to that there's a lot that you pick from from every scene and every like intricate every act like especially the you know Paul Dano you know with his church you know we're talking we have church and we have greed in the church too like it's it's just it was a profound movie to me I hadn't seen a movie that captured like the spirit of America and that bombastic score to me I it, it, it reminded me of like cars and traffic and just I hear I hear like adding machines and like you know the classic, yeah the scene from uh, Billy Wilder's the apartment where it just shows all of these accountants where Jack Lemon works and it's just endless rows of cubicles or like Brazil like Gilliam's Brazil just endless rows of people like clickety clack click, 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 and they're like yeah. some sort of devilish fucking rhythm they're creating together yeah. and that's why I mean I feel like that's why that score is in there and I, I actually haven't read any interviews or anything about uh, the, the filmmaking process I haven't read like or I haven't even seen Paul Thomas Anderson in an interview talking about his movie I'm just that's how much I love the movie I didn't want to see I didn't want to like pull back the curtain and you know see what the trick was because I, I sometimes with with my movies that I love I I don't want to like know the trick I don't want to hear the magician talk about what what their magic trick was uh, well I'm here to tell you I have watched interviews and I'm still I still cannot figure out how I feel about Daniel Caldecott plain view no matter what I've heard him say no matter what I've heard yes again Quentin Tarantino say and, but it, I mean it is it's this powerful spell that after so many viewings that I'm still conflicted and it's it's Anderson and it's it's Daniel Day-Lewis when do we get our money Daniel aren't you a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit when are you coming over and make my son here again? Can't you do that? Let me bless the world this happened. Daniel, you should have done that. Oh, you owe the church of the third revelation. Five thousand dollars. Oh, I feel right to the we made. Don't even try it. This is one of those movies, and normally I'm kind of wary, weary. I always use these words wrong. Normally I'm a bit dubious when I hear stories or rumors to the effect of, you know, if so-and-so had not agreed to do this movie, it might not have been made. Um, I feel like Sofia Coppola said that about Bill Murray uh, for Lost in Translation. And I know for a fact, I shouldn't say I know for a fact, I've read online that PTA said the very same thing about Daniel Day-Lewis and this movie, that he would not have made it if it wasn't for him. Um, I, and not to bring up Quentin Tarantino again, but I'm going to do it. Tarantino almost didn't even make Inglorious Bastards because he didn't think he was going to be able to find somebody that could play Hans Landa. But then uh, Christoph Waltz walked into his life. But I think sometimes that kind of creative insistence pays off. Other times, unfortunately, I think it's a little limiting. It might create a little undue level of focus on one specific character. But in the case of this movie, I think Anderson definitely knew best. He knew that this script was strong. He knew that he was surrounded by strong industry players. But he also knew that in order for the final product of this film to truly disturb and 
puzzle and linger in the minds of the audience, he needed DDL. Um, yeah. He, I mean, it's definitely his best performance. I, you know what? I still haven't seen. I still haven't seen Phantom Thread. Hmm. Have you seen it? I, I've seen it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound good. Well, I think he, I think a lot of his films have to do with um, people who are uh, obsessed with either, they are just obsessed. He has a lot of uh, obsession in his films when that, you know, Boogie Nights, they're all obsessed with the porn industry and themselves. And then Punch Drunk Love. The girl's obsessed with him and he kind of- He's kind of obsessive compulsive himself. <laughs> yeah. And then you get into There Will Be Blood, which, yeah, it's definitely obsession there. And then The Master, uh, a lot of a lot of his work um, has to deal with um, people who, I don't know, have some sort of like compulsive obsession. I have a weird relationship with PTA. What do you guys think is his best film? Because I think it's this. Yeah, I do too. It used to be Magnolia, but- God, I hate that movie. I mean, you said it best when you said this this is really him finding a voice. And I think with Boogie Nights and with Magnolia, he was trying to do something else. I mean, it's it's so obvious. And yeah. then with this with this movie and then The Master, and then like just knocking me on my ass with Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice is my second favorite of his movies. I think that movie is absolutely spectacular. Yeah, that's actually, yeah. I put that second too. Do you? Spro, you want to? Well, I'll have to revisit Inherent Vice, but I would agree that There Will Be Blood is probably PTA's best. And then I think right now my second favorite would be The Master, even though I don't think I'll ever watch that film. That that gave me the ickies. He brings out the best in his actors. You don't get the kind of performances from these same types. I know. I, I think Tom Cruise and Magnolia. Tom Cruise and Magnolia. Yeah. That's a perfect example. I mean, I really don't like Paul Dano in anything else other than maybe a little bit of Little Miss Sunshine, but he wasn't doing a whole lot in that film. Uh, what about Swiss Army Man? I liked him in that. Yeah, I loved him in that. <laughs> that movie's hilarious. But yeah, no, like there's something about, and I don't know, do we know anything about his his work style? Like what kind of director he is? We talked a lot about David Fincher in this episode and how he's a hundred take guy. How What is Paul Thomas Anderson it's like great, on set? It's a great question. I've heard that now he's a little more like after There Will Be Blood, like when he did The Master, because I actually met his casting director and I met his... um art assistant at this Q&A in LA. It was at the Writers Guild, actually, of America. Yeah, they have a little theater over here. They did a whole q and I forget who else was there. There was another, but they, they talked about, they worked on every film of his. And they said that when he did The Master, he was doing it differently. He was changing shots last minute when before, like Magnolia, he was very methodic. And There Will Be Blood, he was he, you know, he storyboarded, he, he knew where he wanted the camera. And then when he, he changed his style for the master and, and hair advice too, because that's, that's the movie where I was like, yeah, it, it is very different in terms of like where he puts his camera and stuff. Cause I guess he would go on set and he would be like, you know what, let's put the camera here instead. And then the, Oh, it was a costume designer. And so the, the, <laughs> the set dresser, the, she was furious. Like she's like, she, you know, you decorate a whole table and lamp and then he's like now nah, we're gonna shoot in this white wall that's not even decorated because they planned to shoot there 
And he's like, I like, I want white wall instead. You know, she mentioned that his style had changed a lot. And I, I don't know if she worked on <laughs> what was the movie? Uh, Phantom, Phantom Thread. Thread. I don't know if she uh, worked with him on that or not. I, didn't, I never looked into that. I could see how that, like if a director is succumbing to their own whims and, and being extemporaneous, but it might also just be where he was at creatively in his head. Yeah, I, that's a that's a great question because I he does a lot of interviews, but very you, you can't find a lot of him talking extensively about his own movies. Typically, he's talking with other people about their movies. Yeah, it seems like that's the only way he'll do an interview is if he's got a filmmaker interviewing him, and then he just kisses the other filmmaker's ass. Yes, well, they all do that. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that he's not that. While he really digs shooting on film, he admits not to being as precious about it as Tarantino is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, That's I brought true. up Tarantino again. I've watched The Master, I think, three times, and I've probably watched There Will Be Blood 33 times, and maybe this has something to do with it, but I don't feel like there's near the amount of indelible shots in The Master that there are in There Will Be Blood. Not to say that there are none, that there aren't any sequences where I'm like, wow. Like, I'm thinking of the part in The Master where he's trying... Taking that guy's picture. <laughs> oh yeah. Or the, wow. you know, the the couple times that he and Philip Seymour Hoffman sit down or the shot of Joaquin up the top of the pro's nest of the boat and it's looking down. There's a lot of interesting shots, but it's almost pales in comparison cinematographically. I think I might have made that word up to there will be blood. I could see that. I mean, honestly, I thought he's doing a time period, which, you know, he, he did the 70s, like the 60s, he did the 18 or the early 1900s. Like he's very not interested in our, our timeline, apparently. So let's talk about There Will Be Blood. Why does PTA deserve the award this year over filmmakers like the Coens, like Fincher? What about the style that he brought to There Will Be Blood that makes this such a masterpiece, especially his masterpiece? I I would, first and foremost, the Coen brothers should have won a long time ago before No Country came out. Fargo okay. was an amazing film. Yeah. And, but you, this is. Do you think No Country for Old Men? Sorry, not to cut you off, but do you think No Country for Old Men was a political move by the Academy? I. Uh, no, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I think because they're <laughs> like, yeah, we need to reward these guys. Like, and they just made something that was uh, really different. But it, it goes back to Blood Simple. They hadn't made a movie like that since Blood Simple. So it was a real, like, cold thriller with, mixed with a little bit of Western. It is kind of bonkers. And I like The English Patient, but it is kind of bonkers when you look back that it's such a tight movie like Fargo did not win Best Picture that year. Yeah. And by tight, I mean, like, just, I mean, it's one of the most well paced comedy thriller <laughs> i don't even know what i yeah. agree and honestly I, I like that take though that they they probably should have won before this yeah i mean if the academy was nicer to comedies oh brother where art thou is like one of those top perfect comedies like it's it's flawless miller's crossing barton fink big lebowski so then what was your follow-up to the fact that the cohen should have won long ago uh, that's, that's exactly it. It's just, I think it was a political move for the Academy. Like they were dealing with two heavy hitters and I think it should have belonged to Paul Thomas Anderson because he had just found his voice. And that's usually when you should reward a filmmaker is when they're like, oh, this is them at the top of their game. I mean, once we get into No Country for Old Men, I have more to say, but. 
It's strange to me when a film wins best cinematography, but not best director. And, you know, I'm not, okay, so you agree with me. I was going to say, I'm not near, I'm not nearly experienced as you two guys are, but I think we could argue that as far as the images are concerned, the director of photography is arguably the second most important person on the set. Maybe sometimes the most important. They negotiate, they, with the director's vision, they prepare. I think the DP is the most like important person on, on the set in terms of what the movie is going to look like. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the, it's their job to, if the director, if the director is able to articulate their vision, it's their job to put it on film. And if they can do that as a team, all the better. So a, a lot of casual film goers equate cinematography though to like pleasing images or landscapes or maybe even innovative camera movements so it gets kind of a very limited definition and i think because of that the academy fucks up a lot and gives this award to shitty movies that look good like legends of the fall came out (laughs) came out in 94 a year just fucking bursting at the seams with good movies we talked about this already uh yet the academy voters gave john toll best cinematography for it over pulp fiction the professional hudsucker proxy Speed, Muriel's Wedding, Quiz Show, Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption, and on and on. All of which provide those visions far exceeding Legends of the Falls, mawkish, forgettable. Oh, it was pretty looking. Gives a shit. And interestingly enough, Toll ended up winning the following year again for Gibson's Braveheart. But Gibson also won Best Director that year. The DP of There Will Be Blood, Robert Ellswit, walked away with the Oscar this year over Deacons for, and if you want to talk about a political award, what did Deacons finally win for? Blade Runner 2049? (laughs) Which, I mean, it didn't blow my hair back. I know there's a lot of people out there that love it to death, but in any event, Ellswit, every single shot of Anderson's films other than Phantom Thread was shot by Ellswit. I guess Anderson was credited as his own DP for Phantom Thread, but his work yeah. on this film won him it won him the Oscar, and herein lies just a little bit of a beef. If Ellswit's photography was so masterful as to earn him the cinematography Oscar, then logic would denote that Anderson's leadership was what led him to this accolade. So, in essence, Ellswit did his job by Anderson's design, and so his accolade is also Anderson's accolade. Yeah, but the, you have cinematographers and DPs, though, so... Oh, I thought those were synonymous terms. Director of photography and cinematographer are not No, a uh, director of photography, they don't operate their own camera. A cinematographer operates their own camera. They literally direct the the people they tell them what lens there's usually just too lazy or whatever they don't want to hold the camera i didn't know that i never knew that i thought those were synonymous terms i mean there's not a huge difference though they're 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 both in control of doing everything one's just more hands-on so Um, in context of the awards you know there's not two different awards so how did how does that break down for the academy do you think is this two jobs on set no, they consider it the same thing. They are synonymous. Like I said, there's only a very slight difference. It's just literally physically holding the camera and looking through the lens while you're shooting. Like, And most cinematographers will, and DPs, they all look through their lens when they're shooting, but they're not like- Sitting they're not on like, the crane? Yeah, they're not sitting on the crane. They're they're doing stuff. They're getting in control of the lighting. They're, you Craft know, services? Yeah. They're also director of photographers. They're doing the same job. There's just, it's a weird, subtle difference that- it's not enough for the Academy, but cinematographers definitely want that credit. They definitely want to be known like, I operated this camera. I moved the crane. I did this. Like, And DPs are like, 
like, yeah, I, I was sitting there. I had my eye on the lens. <laughs> it's interesting to learn that. But ultimately, my point is, I feel, and go, this goes back to the conversation we were having earlier, where it's like, should best picture and best director be paired? And if I'm going to back off and say, no, it's okay if those things are separated, man, it really feels like best director and best cinematographer really should be paired. Yeah, I, I so agree. Did La La Land win best cinematography? I hope not. I, I can't stand La La Land. <laughs> yeah. I know. It was so satisfying to see that ripped away. That Now that was, there you go. They literally got it ripped away from them. They're like, whoa, whoa, we made, it, we made a mistake. I will somewhat agree with, like, I agree that these should go hand in hand more so than best director and best picture. I don't know if it's the skeptic in me, but I kind of feel like Hollywood sometimes in the back of my mind, if it's a young director perhaps with their first project a studio might give them a very competent cinematographer and that person might make the director look good so that's what i would say like they shouldn't always go hand in hand yeah the guy that shot Mm. that shot pulp fiction i've never even heard the dude seriously i need to stop bringing up tarantino i looked it up though (laughs) La, la la land did win best cinematography for linus sangren yeah, sure. Hollywood loved La La Land. Boy, did they. Yeah, they did. Spro, so what's your argument? The whole cohesive vision? Did we talk <laughs> about No Country for Old Men? No, we haven't even gone into that. Let me ask you something. What's the most you ever lost in a coin toss? Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. Just call it friendo. What's in the satchel? Mr. Polo, money. He's just a guy who happened to find that money. I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. Well, it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. Did you go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. I don't come back and tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. I got a loose cannon here. You think this boy Moss has got any notion of the sorts of dead are hunting him? I don't know. He ought to. He's seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's just all out war. You can't stop what's coming. Is this guy supposed to be the ultimate badass? You don't understand.
All right. I feel like we like we beat around the bush. We pitter pattered around it. I don't have much to say about it because yeah, we have talked about it. I mean, No Country for Old Men was the one that won Best Director um, for for Joel and Ethan Cohen. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first year that we have a chance to talk about the Cohen brothers. And I can't fucking believe it's because we're taking their Oscars away. God damn it, you Cordy. Mm, mm. Anything <laughs> for PTA. <laughs> Actually, no. I think we did talk about them because we, we we talked about True Grit on episode one of season one. The Coens have been making movies for 40 years nearly, beginning with 1984's Blood Simple. And obviously some of their movies are better than others. I don't think they've made a bad one. I would I would say I still like Hudsucker Proxy. I still like Intolerable Cruelty. I yeah, fucking I love Lady Killers. Um, yeah, Lady Killers was just so such a weird movie. I, oh, yeah, I loved it. Burn it's After great. Reading is just, oh. Yeah, that. That, that, yeah. But I remember, I just, No Country is one of those those ones that I got immediately. Like as soon as I walked out of the movie, it like the anxiety that I felt while watching it just didn't abate. I kept walking, like waiting to see Anton Chigurh walk around the corner with his fucking, I need you to step out of the car, please, sir. It wasn't one that I needed to ruminate on much. Like the ending, people talk about how the ending is so anticlimactic, you know, just pissed them off so much. And it was like, I told, I just fucking got it on every level. The first time I saw it, it's like, yep, obviously. And you know, whether my interpretation is correct or not, doesn't matter to me. It, it hit me on every level. So it's more accessible in that way. It's it's not quite- I agree. A- I, I think no country is more accessible to like normal American audience, like like the average one and the smart ones, like they, they'll all get it. Anyways, um, <laughs> sorry, did that sound mean to dumb people? <laughs> they deserve it. it- <laughs> The reason why I think that There Will Be Blood is in way, in many ways like a better film is because I think the story is more important to our culture than No Country for Old Men. Whereas No Country for Old Men is this nihilistic thriller that deals with a dude who has one principle and that's chaos and he it's a principle in obeying chaos. Like, you know, it goes back to the big Lebowski. He's just one of those guys, a nihilist, but an actual one. Plus, it's just, I mean, no country is less of a character study. Not that there aren't great characters. Way less, exactly. of, a char- way less of a character study. I mean, the plot of No Country for Old Men would take a whole lot longer to recount to someone, even if you even if you truncated it, then there will be blood. And there will be blood is longer. More happens. There's more story events. And like you said, it is a thriller. And not to say that there will be blood isn't thrilling at parts, but yeah. Yeah. And there's action. There's violence. There's, there's all that stuff in No Country for Old Men. All the things that I love in movies is in that movie. So I, I, I am not trying to rip the Academy Award from the Coen brothers, except that it was competing with There Will Be Blood. Like <laughs> any other year, I would have been like, give that to them. Give it to them. They deserve it. It just It's unfortunate that those movies were made at the same time. But I had to go with PTA on this one because that's that's all I have to say about there. There's no there is no country for old men. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, you know, season two, episode one, Jeremy hit it on the head. And it's the most easiest way to convince me of why something or someone deserves the award over someone else. And it's just it's it, it tells us about our society it tells us about who we are and how we got here and and it's more of a reflection of the times that we are living in and i think that is what the academy needs to recognize and when it comes to style over substance it's definitely pta with there will be blood over the coen brothers with no country for old men i don't know if it's definitely it's fucking close oh it's definitely because <laughs> i'm still putting zodiac i would prefer zodiac over no country for old men right on
Pastor Daniel. I'm finished. Cordy, I appreciate you uh, challenging us for the premiere of season two because, yeah, this one was tough because of how beloved No Country is. And I do. I go back and forth because, I, like I said, I watch this movie a lot and I do rewatch No Country, but nowhere near as often as I rewatch There Will Be Blood. And yeah. it's just, I waffle. I'm like, God, both of these are such good fucking movies. They are. But yeah, I think you're, I think you're right, man. I don't, I'm excited for Paul Thomas Anderson's new one, tentatively titled Soggy Bottom for right now but uh, we'll see if that title sticks yeah we'll see if it's more uh, chaotic in the camera work or not (laughs) but I I don't know man I don't know if he'll ever make anything better than this I I really don't even if he does you know that he's gonna get his award sometime yeah I agree yeah it'll be for this it'll be for (laughs) the next one unless he fulfills that that Kubrick parallel all the way to the end and dies having never received one but (laughs) that could be that's the end of the beginning of (laughs) season one the end of the beginning but we've got lots in store for uh, the next slew of episodes. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or take a moment to rate and review the show on your Apple Podcasts app. Of course, if you disagree, you can always send your criticism, suggestions, questions, rants, or whatever to takeontheacademy at gmail.com. Or if emails are too archaic for you, uh, there's a group on Facebook, not much less archaic than email, but Instagram at takeontheacademy as well. Please find us. Please follow us. Like us. Speak with us. Tell your friends about us. Just help us to be more visible and uh, help us keep the conversation going because god damn it I love talking about movies and Jeremy thanks for coming on the show it's nice nice to talk to somebody that knows their shit not yeah, to say I that hope. Spro doesn't know his shit I, that, did that sound bad? no I didn't, wasn't taking that at- <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but now I feel like you don't think it <laughs> <laughs> oh he knows his shit I listen to the show he knows Spro knows no shit. no Jeremy's actually got in a movie made so I'm gonna pass it over to him <laughs> No, I'm uh, I'm making a couple of shorts coming up. Look forward to those. I'm excited. I'm getting back in the film. Nice. Place, so. Do you have any anything that you want to swing our audience over to? Anything that you want to promote? Troma. Uh, well, I, like I said, uh, my movie Porking Mandy. It's finally got it on Troma now, which you can download on anything that uh, has apps, pretty much. You can download it on your phone if you want. And uh, you can look forward to some shorts that I'm going to be doing. If you want to follow me at Sick and Sweet on Twitter. That's pretty much what I what I promote. It's just sick and sweet on Twitter. If you go back seven, ten years, you can look at my offensive stuff that I used to post and you can try to cancel me. <laughs> I don't think anybody that listens to our show would do that. All right, Jeremy. I appreciate you coming on the show, brother. Yeah, thanks, guys. I'm Lee. And I'm Spro. We hope you'll be back in two weeks, and we hope you'll be sitting front row when the envelopes are ready. Then when the hurdy-gurdy man came singing Well, that does it for our Season 2 opener. We'd like to thank Jeremy Cordy once again for coming on, being our directing expert. Tune in September 20th for our next episode when we go after the Best Actress of 2010. And if you're new to our little shindig, Spro and Lee episodes, Old and Fresh, are released every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. 
Please join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or send an email to takeontheacademy at gmail.com with any suggestions, questions, complaints, recipes, or manifestos. We like hearing from you. We'll see you front row when the envelopes are read. Just then when the herd in good in man comes singing songs of love. Then when the herd in good in man comes singing songs of love. Herd in good in man.